For another episode of Space in 60 with 60. 60. <laughs> we did that last time, Chad. We did that. <laughs> That's getting old. We need to come up with a new one. Come on. Be nice to Chad. He's on the air. I'm not cutting. I know. I, I'm giving him a hard time because he's been in Aruba forever. First day back. And here's what I'm dealing with. He deserves no slack whatsoever. No slack. None at all. So how was the trip to Aruba? It was pretty amazing. It's uh, it's hard to complain. Sunny, warm, nice breeze every day. Sit by the pool with the family and enjoy. I think all those pictures were just fakes. Yeah, I agree. So while Chad was gone, he was sending all of these pictures, right? Like sunsets, palm trees, beautiful beaches. It looked just like that that gif that's in the background of Zoom when you have the meeting and you have the waves coming in. It's like, that's what I need to use it for now. See? Yeah, really, I was just sitting here in Virginia, just, you know, sending pictures out. It was <laughs> trying to make you all jealous. So what all did you do while you were down there? Anything cool? No, we just relaxed. It was great. The whole thing was cool, Clint. I've been there before. Did you go see the uh, the sunken ship and dive and stuff? We didn't. We we're going to, but then we figured it's, it's such a chunk of the day. And with the young kids, it was just tough to kind of break away. So once they get a little older, we're definitely, definitely getting into that. Yeah, you got to leave a reason to go back. Yeah. I mean, most of it, there's a lazy river. I mean, just float around there, have a good day, throw the kids in the pool. The last time I threw my kids, I dislocated my shoulder, throwing the kids in the pool. I think I'm starting to age not well. Like I was throwing my kids, I was in the pool, putting them on the shoulders, giving them a good throw and then snap and shoulder pops out. So uh, where next? Where are you going after Aruba? San Diego. Keeping it in warm locations, but not for as much fun. Well, I guess it's just as much fun. Yeah, San Diego is pretty great. What about you, Andrew? Where do the where do the Canadians go for vacation? Uh, usually to sunny places like Aruba, Hawaii, Dominican Republic. Man, do you guys ever work? Sounds like all you do is just kind of fly around and enjoy palm trees. We try to. We work when it's snowing. So like we get hunkered down, locked in our houses. It's kind of like pandemic lockdown, but it happens every winter. Just Canadian, Canadian lockdown. Yeah, exactly. We actually get a lot of Canadians down here in Florida. It seems like there used to be this direct WestJet flight, I think, from from Calgary to every city to, to Orlando, right? Well, that's Florida just in general, Clint. Hate to tell you. You got this Disney World thing that, you know, draws everybody in. Is that still going to be around? Like, I heard Disney World is no longer its own little state fiefdom anymore. Oh, wow. I'd get myself in so much trouble talking about that one. But yeah, Disney lost its right to self-govern here in Florida. And so all of that cost of taking care of Disney is going to get pushed onto the taxpayers, like all the taxpayers across the state. That was not smart. Yeah. It's so now instead of Disney pulling that money from all of its commercial operations, suddenly that's being pushed down into taxes. And at first they thought it was going to be everyone in Orange County or around this area, but now it's been, I guess, pushed out to all citizens that reside in Florida are going to realize that cost in their taxes so that now the state can now pay for all that. Awesome. So what you're saying is become a Disney shareholder and reap the profits of... I'm sure Disney's profits went way up after that, but they had their own their own fire station and fire brigade. They had their own police force, like all of it. And But they paid for it all. 
Mickey Mouse was running the fire station. Donald Duck was doing the the police force. And no, those are the guys that co-host the show with me. Uh, <laughs> oh. Well, in all seriousness, we've got a really cool guest on the show. Maybe we should quit talking about all this other stuff and get to the get with a great guest on the show today. On today's show, we have Robert Firebach. I am really looking forward to to meeting Robert today. I think he's a bit of an everything guy. He's all over the space industry, you know, super diverse, speaks seven different languages. I even think, I think he grew up outside of the country, moved back and, you know, hopefully he can to get to all that with us, but I can't wait to meet him, hear what he's doing. So the current president of Maritime Launch Services, the chief executive officer of Zero G Launch. Welcome to the show, Robert. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. All of the above. above. (laughs) (laughs) Jinx. Yeah. (laughs) Different time zones, I assume, uh, obviously, from, uh, I don't know where you guys are. Where where are you guys located, by the way? Hi, Chad, Andrew, Clint. We're everywhere. We're, I'm in Florida. Andrew's in Calgary area. You're close to where I am, Andrew. Okay, Chad, where you're at? I'm outside Richmond, Virginia. I was going to say, we got two Canadians now. We usually give Andrew a hard time, but I guess we can't today. Thanks for, for inviting me for this session. Uh, well, if you want me to start, uh, as a kid, I always obviously loved space. I loved the, the stars. And I wanted to be one of those guys in the white coats that was touching you know, scientific instruments and so forth. But I didn't deem myself to be scientifically strong enough to be able to be one of those guys. So uh, instead of that, I would just look at stars and get telescopes and that kind of thing. So when I got my master's degree, this company called Ecosphere International out of Denver, that was the name at the time, came and was interviewing candidates from uh, the, the MBA school. And they wanted people who spoke several languages because they wanted to set up a company in, in Europe right away. And I had no idea what Ecosphere International did because you know we didn't have internet back then, right? So you couldn't look it up or anything real quick. So I went to the interview. And we just clicked with the person that I was speaking with. We switched to Spanish and then he switched to back to English and so forth. And it turned out this was EchoStar, the current EchoStar uh, company that manages the DISH network in the United States. And then they also are, are managing now a, a mobile network across the United States. Because of that good relationship, they just clicked. I found myself in Netherlands about a week after I graduated. And we started uh, going after those, the, the small pizza-sized dish market that grew and started in Europe rather than the United States. And that's how I entered the, uh, the space industry, unbeknownst to me that, that it, would be, it would go that way, right? I was, I was applying for a, for a job with uh, Apple Computer and a few others at the time when I was graduating. But here I was. All of a sudden, I was in the space industry, and I never looked back since. It's been 30 years now. So That totally reminds me of... Clint, how you got into the space industry. Just That was a, a crazy story. But rather than talk about me, I, I want to know, I read that you speak seven languages. You said this one kind of came about that way. Like, how do you end up speaking seven languages? I do have a good, pretty good ear, you know, uh, and I'm very musical. So that helps. But I started with three. I was raised in, uh, you know, my, my father was American from California. My mother was a little tiny Bolivian. So they went down to visit the grandparents and then they stayed in Bolivia. So I was speaking Spanish in the country, speaking German in kindergarten from kindergarten all the way to graduation, the German school and uh, English at home. So I started with three 
So we have three already. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth are much easier, right? That's what I was thinking. The fourth, the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. Like the seventh was the easiest. Well, you're just three. I mean, threw me for a loop. So I'm still stuck on my one. Until you try Turkish. I'm still trying to master Turkish. Now, that would be a hard one. That would be a that hard one. That sounds difficult. Yeah. So that, that had to have helped working in Europe, speaking so many languages. You know, uh, Clint, it helped incredibly. That's one of the reasons why I, I was very, very stubborn about teaching my kids uh, and speaking to them in Spanish as well, just because it's something else, you know, to differentiate yourself from competition and an additional asset. In Europe, many a time, I found myself, I guess, jumping through the hoops much quicker because I was deemed to be part of the team. So when I was in France, I was part of the French team and they didn't ever think of me as this American, you know, guy. They just, because I, uh, I'm fluent enough that they figured I'm one of the guys, right? Same thing in Luxembourg, going switching between German and French and uh, Flemish with some of the other colleagues. They never considered me a, a foreigner, right? And that really, really has helped my career in many, many ways. You know, even when I went to Italy, I didn't speak any Italian, but kind of managed and then learned Italian there, you know, living there a couple of years in Torino. But uh, that for me, it's been a key thing. And I, that's why I, I insisted to, to do that with my kids and speak around the table. They speak, well, when they were, when they're around, they would speak uh, Spanish to dad and then English to mom on the same table. And that's just the way we did it at home. And uh, French benefit is my wife understands Spanish now. I can't force her to speak back in Spanish, but that's a French benefit. That's a great way to get into any industry, regardless of whether it's the space industry. If you've got a great ear for the language, it gives you an incredible doorway into the culture and an understanding of the the way that, that other people think from other places. And I think that it tremendously broadens your, your worldview, being able to see closely how people think about those things. My mother used to say, uh, when she was alive, she used to say, it, uh, travel creates a world you know, people with world. And by that, she meant an openness, an acceptance, a sensitivity to things that are different from the place you live in, right? And travel does create world, creates a world, you know, a world attitude, I guess, right? In people. And so that led you into the space industry. And I did a little bit of research before you came on the show and you are involved in so many things. It's, you're almost like a, a Bruce Wayne of, the space industry, when I look at all the different things that you do and you're interested in with languages and cars and launch and like all of these different things, like what do you do most of the time? Like, is there anything that catches your attention from the space industry for most of your day? You know, you're right. I mean, it's, it's a, a I've done kind of a, a kaleidoscope of things in the space industry, everything from video services to launch to robotics in space and analytics with, with software and so forth. But what really, really gets me, uh, I think it'd be just because it's hard and it's uh, physics, a lot of physics is involved, is the launch part. You know, that, that's the one part that really grabs me more than anything else. And that is not only for rockets, for sending satellites to space or humans to space for that matter, but it's anything that involves high-speed travel, high-speed vehicles. And, you know, right now, if we look at, there are several companies, four or five companies right now that are looking at uh, hypersonic vehicles that will break the barrier of Mach 5 to Mach 9 for cargo transport, but then for people transport point to point. And that is coming. That is something that is definitely a thing that's coming in the next 20 years or so, 25 years, just like orbital travel point to point is also going to become a reality. So all those things fascinate me because if you can just imagine right now, you know, COVID spread so quickly around the world. And my theory is because 
people travel, right? I mean, people travel left and right very easily today. Uh, flights used to be cheap. They're not cheap right now, but they used to be very, very cheap. So people go you know, from one continent to another within the one day. So that's how COVID spread so quickly. But in reality, our whole expectation of relationships with companies has dramatically changed over the past 50, 60 years since people travel on a normal basis every single day, every single week, every single month of the year. You can just imagine if you can shorten that day now to instead of a round trip, one side or the other, to the other side of the world, it's typically about a three-day affair, roughly, three to three and a half days to come and go. If you go to take a flight to Australia, for example, if you can imagine now shortening that to half an hour travel between uh, London and Tokyo, go for breakfast, do your thing, come back, and you're home for dinner. That's going to transform completely again the way business is done, you know, and, and that's coming. It's coming. And so for me, anything that involves propulsion, high-speed travel and so forth, that's where it really gets me going today. Along with, of course, all the other things you mentioned about uh, the space industry. And hopefully in 30 minutes, United won't lose your luggage. <laughs> <laughs> no layovers. No, yeah, no, no layovers. You're right. That's where things get lost, right? Instead, I think that little uh, travel app now that uh, United has where you can track your bags. I use it constantly, you know, to see where my bags are. And that's pretty cool because it, uh, it's actually right on time. Yesterday, I got on the flight and I saw my bags coming in, you know, on the conveyor belt. And the guy zapped my bag because I could see it coming in because it was right underneath my side. And within 30 seconds, my app told me the bag was on the plane. So that's pretty cool. Mine was just the opposite. I just got back and they they left my bag in Charlotte. So, it was, uh, you know, I didn't get that zap till the next day. I was going to say you saw it on the beach in Aruba. I better go back and get it. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of cool things happening right now. And, you know, I, I see one of the things that you're spearheading today is maritime launch services. Love to hear about that. It's uh, been about four and a half years in the making. I was working with Steve Matier, the CEO of Maritime Launch Services in Canada, quite a few years now helping him in several areas of, of trying to get a, state, a spaceport licensed and getting the business plan done and looking at launch vehicles and figuring out which would be the best model to, to have up there. Steve was involved in setting up several spaceports. He, he was a, very much a, a key player to set up the very first spaceport in the United States, Spaceport America in New Mexico. He was also involved in, uh, in getting things done for, uh, for the spaceport in, uh, in Texas and uh, in Midland, somewhat involved with the Rocket Lab spaceport in New Zealand as well. So a lot of experience there. And so when he started looking for a site, for a launch site in, in across uh, North America, Canada seemed to have some very, very good places because you have these little fingers that stick out on both sides, right? West side and east side from Canada, kind of just like tentacles go out into the ocean. And when you launch something, you really want to launch over non-populated areas makes it a lot easier to get your launch window licenses and you want to have less traffic from aircraft and, the, and so forth, right? To get your launch windows uh, done. So he happened upon uh, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia has this beautiful finger about three and a half hours away from Halifax going Northeast that is hundred percent over the ocean. And in fact, the Nova Scotians like to say uh, it's uh, something like uh, the, you can see the end of the world from Canso in Nova Scotia. Because really, you can. It's, it's, it's all ocean. So he started working with the, with the local communities there and obviously you know, Indian nations and so forth to see whether this was actually feasible or not. And then so finally, about a year ago or so, 
funding, the first transfer funding came in about 10 million bucks. And then the second tranche came in about another 10 million bucks or uh, 20 million bucks total. And that was the time when he said, all right, this is, we've gotten our environmental approval now, get it done. The province is behind us. We have part, partially the government also, you know, hurrying our efforts. It's a private venture, of course. It doesn't use company funding, but uh, all the pieces fall in place. And on top of that, the market was pretty ripe to do a public listing as well and a stock listing. So we ended up uh, doing a stock listing with the Neo Stock Exchange in Canada, which has been acting up pretty well. It's been it's been keeping stable. It hasn't uh, done the, uh, the the horrible horrible dives that some other stocks uh, have done so far. So. We're pretty happy with the whole process. Uh, and Steve then asked me to then join the effort to spearhead all the activities that we're doing out in the United States to look for customers and come after launch missions for the spaceport in Nova Scotia. So I'm very, very happy to, to put a partial hat, one of my other hats, in, uh, to help Steve get this done because I have a very good friendship with him. And I also have a lot of respect for what he's done over this past six, four and a half years or so. I think it's pretty exciting as a Canadian. Definitely need to have a souvenir stand, maple syrup, canoes, all of the above. Up there, as you know, it's it's all about lobster, right? So it's lobster this and lobster that. So uh, uh, yeah, I mean, every time I fly back, I bring another lobster or something or other for uh, my first grandchild, you know, to... to... <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. You got to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, you do. You got to bring it on the plane in a little box. And zero G launch? Yeah, zero G launch is my baby, right? That's something else I've been working on for, for a few years. And uh, about 18 months ago or so, we finally got to the stage where I had enough support, a lot of, enough LOIs and enough uh, work done, technically speaking, to be able to come up in the open. And now we have, uh, it's a, you know, we're modifying commercial aircraft to be able to perform very, very high performance parabolic flights, zero gravity type flights, for astronaut training, for testing equipment before you send to space, which you have to do all the time, and for a, a consumer mission or consumer parabolic flights as well, zero gravity flights. And then in stage two, we're modifying the underbelly of the aircraft. We're planning on having six aircraft. And by modifying the underbelly, we'll be able to sort of simplify the way to say is click on several kinds of uh, small rocket powered vehicles, be they hypersonic vehicles or be they rocket powered vehicles to deliver satellites into into space for small payloads, of course. And that's a big market for us right now, because especially on the hypersonic side, as I mentioned earlier, a lot is being done right now. And there's a lot of government funding, uh, especially for DOD areas to be able to quickly test and do captive carry flights and do drop test flights and even do ignition flights with uh, using commercial providers rather than using uh, you know government providers for these things. You can cut the cost and the time to get these things done. So that's one where I have a lot of very, very strong LOIs on as well. So for me, it's a dual service vehicle that will do parabolic flights and it'll do, do air launch missions. And I'm very excited about that because right now uh, there's, there's just a pent up demand right now for, for the kind of services that we can provide. So that's my other, my other big hat right now these days. You got three of us here. I think that would sign up pretty quick for one of those flights too, once they get going. When do those start? Is there a time frame on that? Well, if everything goes as planned today, uh, we're right now right in the middle of a big fundraising campaign. I think I think if, if the things go the way they are right now, we should be in a position to start flying our very, very first parabolic flight test uh, flights by the first half of next year. So uh, not too far from now. We're talking about uh, roughly less than a year from today. Our first test flights. And by the way, we have a site in Canada too, from which uh, 
No, we got to get him down here for it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great time to uh, schedule a follow-up episode of Space in 60 about that time so that let's do it from zero g though yeah from zero g definitely we're gonna have to have helmets on well i'm gonna have my hockey helmet on oh everything's padded you don't even need no helmets in there because everything's padded and so you can just kind of float away like i was thinking of clint with the microphone might might get a little unwieldy yeah you get the three of us in one of those flights it might be a little bit like thunderdome in there you get to get a little boxing match going on there right oh yeah so what do you think is going to happen with with this industry you said there's a lot of pent-up demand you know what kind of demand are you seeing is it from the commercial world of people that want to experience what astronauts experience is it from the the civil world is it from the commercial world where you know people are starting to you know prepare their their actual teams that will go to space like where are you seeing the the demand there's obviously a, a lot of demand now for going beyond the you know billionaire market right uh, that can pay themselves a 55 million dollar trip to space. That, just like the airlines did in the very, very first flights, when the first jet airlines started flying, you're paying equivalent of, you know, dollars $70,000 uh, per ticket back in the day, right? So, and that's not clearly not the case anymore, unless you're leasing your own aircraft these days. So the more infrastructure, the more aircraft, uh, the more uh, spacecraft, the more repetitious you make these kind of flights, the larger the market becomes, and the prices will, will really drop dramatically. So I think that's what, an area where there's obviously a lot of a lot of companies that are going after that market for space tourism, let's say. But more so than that, there are several companies doing their own private platforms or, or commercial space stations. And so they can create a nucleus of activity in their space stations for not only tourism, but, but uh, scientific research and for developing and creating and 3D printing structures in space and building structures in space rather than sending them built from, from Earth so that we can have a, an actual habitation of space, uh, long-term habitation that is commonplace almost. But to give you just an idea of what's happening in the space industry right now, I don't know if a lot of people know, but but we you know there have been about uh, eight eight and a half thousand satellites launched in the history of humankind since the fifties or so. If we look what's happening right now, there are sixty thousand satellites that have already obtained licenses from the FCC or the ITU to launch in ten years, in these next ten years. So can you imagine that amount of activity right now that is driving this comes from commercial, it comes from companies trying to send satellites into low Earth orbit instead of sending them to geo-orbits where they'd have to build a big bus-sized satellite and design it and finance it over five or six or seven years and then leave it up there for 15 or 20 years. That's no longer the case. Now in the Leo orbits and the low Earth orbits, you design a satellite with a lifetime of three, four, maybe five years, and you replenish that over and over and over again. So you keep launching the newest and the greatest and the you don't have to put in equipment and, and sensors and computers that are hardened to, to last 15 years in space. You launch basically basically the equivalent of an iPhone type of CPU, right, in there. If it doesn't last for uh, six, seven, eight years, it doesn't matter. You launch another one and another one, another one, and you create these small constellations of satellites to provide incredible services. So that innovation right now is so, so, so rampant. And so many companies coming into the space industry that it's just one of the most exciting times in my lifetime in the space industry to be in the, in it right now, because there's just an incredible amount of players and incredible amount of innovation coming in that is driving this right now. 
And you can see by those numbers alone, right? What's happening. You know, what's next for you in, in the industry? Like you've done so many cool things. If you were to pick out one thing that's coming down the, down the pike, for example, what is it you'd want to be a part of and want to do and just not for the money, not for the fame, just because it's super, super exciting? Well, I have to tell you that I'd like to be able to imagine. I'd like to be able to imagine that in my lifetime, I could take that orbital flight to Tokyo, let's say, in a half an hour. That is just so exciting to me because it's not a pipe dream at all. It's more so a reality than a lot of people would have thought 20 years ago. You look at the Starship going to do its first hop to Hawaii, hopefully in another month or two or three. When you start doing that, and you start doing that orbital hop from one side to the earth to the other, that's when things get very exciting. And I can imagine in about 20 years, 25 years, having commonplace hops between one point and the other point on the earth. And I'd like to be able to do that. I'd like to be able to do that hop and half an hour later being the other side of the earth. I think that's just going to change everything. And uh, want to be, I'd love to be part of it. I'm trying to do my, my bit to, uh, to put systems and places and testing mechanisms in place so that we can get there. Because obviously you, can't, you don't want to just uh, put in people that are fresh out of uh, the street that buy their ticket and go right there, right then. You have to have a little bit of training to, to do that hop, right? Sounds like fun. And I can't imagine how our lives would change to be able to do that in such a short amount of time. I mean, one thing is the convenience factor. When I think about how the world's becoming smaller, we're getting to places sooner, whether that's you know flying Mach 5 or whether it's a, an orbital hop. One of the things that, that I've noticed in the last 20 years is, is it's become more commonplace to travel so quickly. I'm starting to see a blending of, of culture around the world that we're becoming less distinct in our culture and everything's starting to blend together. I think that's a good thing in some respects, but it's also taking away, in my opinion, a little bit of the, the character of local and regional, regional culture that's starting to blend a little bit. What do you think? Do you think that's a real, a real thing, a real danger, or, or how do you see it? I guess whenever you make things easy to travel and to get around, right? Uh, Bad things get to transmitted very quickly, like we just spoke at the beginning of, the, of this conversation. But good things are that uh, people are no longer clustered and, or cloistered or, or segregated, I guess, which makes you be able to work wherever from whenever and wherever, right? And that's not a bad thing, I think. You know, I think COVID has showed us that we can be very efficient. And I believe more than ever today that we are even more efficient now, because of uh, the way we're working now and getting so used to doing these kind of things we're doing right now, or resume, for example, you're not having to drive to an office for an hour and a half or two hours every day, uh, each way in some cases, right? Same thing goes for, you know, international kind of things. Now you can hire people from anywhere, pretty much, depending on what technology you're developing, of course. But, you know, the borders are now no longer there. So in a way, things are blending a lot more. And, some, and when you do that, you do lose a little bit of the local culture, local language, local things, but it's also opportunistic. It's opportunity. That's for opportunity for growth, opportunity for development, opportunity for self-sustaining kind of countries that are a bit uh, still on the development path can now see themselves very well positioned to, to be very strong players in the IT world, for example, you know, because those resources are a lot less expensive and guess what? They're very, very efficient. You can work with them, right? I kind of like that. I like it, but it, but it does take away a little bit of the 
the local flair for sure. And it's just part of the globalization. Absolutely. Yeah. I imagine it's going to be much like when we went from, I guess, cruise ships or transatlantic ships to aircraft. That's going to change the world in, in much the same way. But it's also very exciting. I mean, you know, it's, it's exciting because, uh, I mean, I remember sending letters, typing up letters for business. I mean, come on, who can wait seven days or, or 10 days for the letter to arrive and then another seven days for the letter to come back? Crazy, right? And then faxes. Took it to the next level. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We still use fax up here. It's a sensitive spot with Andrew, so I like to put that one out there. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't used my fax machine for, I don't know, a decade, I think, now anymore. still there, but I haven't used it, really, for, for what it does. There's a, a company that is in the, the remote sensing industry that still takes orders for images from space with a fax machine. Like I continue to hear that that's still happening and it just blows me away. Fax us your order. Yeah, we don't, we don't even list fax numbers anymore. <laughs> Hardly anybody uses them. So why, right? Why waste an extra line or something, you know? So do you see, you know, kind of the future and looking down the road too with zero G? I mean, even starting to look at that, I know you're looking at launch from the belly and parabolic flights, but even further down the road, kind of getting into that hypersonic flights or is that a different beast and a different venture of its own? We were, we're, gonna, we're an enabler, I would say, rather than the actual company doing the hypersonic flights. So the advantage of, of what we have is we're not building the rockets or the vehicles ourselves. We're just uh, putting in an interface at the bottom of the aircraft that allows you to use vehicle A, B, or C in, in these kind of flights. And the great thing about that is that we can help vehicles around the world that are doing these kind of things to develop their technologies a lot quicker by just leasing our transport services. So for me, it's really fun because as you can tell, I'm a very curious person. I want to learn constantly. I want to know more. And by doing this, I'm working very very closely together with different kinds of vehicles, different form factors of vehicles, and different kinds of technologies. And I'm learning, and I'm learning about that. And for me, that's just like, uh, you know, unfortunately, I just, I don't do too much outside of the space industry. I do mainly what I do. Oops, I think just fell down. I mainly do... Uh, uh, industry reading all the time and everything's about space and, and kind of, you know, very centered around that. But there's uh, there's so many good texts that are that are being done and that are being developed right now that I have exposure to it. And for me, there's nothing nicer than that. Just learning more and more and more, you know, about what what different innovative uh, technologies are, are being developed by very young companies, too, that have a totally, totally fresh uh, view of how they want to do things and how they want to break things to get there, you know? Well, it is like with, with space, it's within your phone and with everything you're doing every day. I mean, it's a piece of everybody's world. And to that point too, you know, thinking about the travel and different pieces, it's just, it's the next layer of it. Staying in the space world is a good thing. And, you know, we, we, we didn't take the route of trying to develop our own vehicles either, because that's very, very expensive. Uh, any, any kind of rocket type of program, you're talking about at least a couple hundred million before you can start getting operational. At least Virgin, uh, because they're a public company, uh, we know that they spent $500 million so far in their uh, Virgin Orbit program. That's a lot of money uh, when you know you have to recoup all that investment later on. So we're basically a FedEx for the companies that want to do those. And there are about 160 companies around the world today that are developing some sort of uh, rocket propelled technology. Not all of them will make it for sure, because it's very expensive, as I said, but there are several of them that are. And I have agreements with them to to get them there as well, you know, uh, doing air launch. So it's exciting because I'm I'm learning at the same time, right? By working with them. So you know, they always say they always say space is hard, but uh, it's becoming less hard now because a lot of people are are doing things that uh, 
they weren't taught to do. And they're trying to say, well, what if we do it this way? What if we do it the other way? Right. And it's great. I mean, like this one company trying to, uh, to send satellites uh, with a rotational sling, slings fired aerospace. 70 years ago or so, there were missiles. So they were shot from big, big, uh, you know, tubes to try to, try to do that sort of thing for basically for, uh, for, for bombs, right? And some people started thinking, well, what if we could do it even stronger and longer and further and so forth and didn't go anywhere. But now some of these tests are starting to yield something. So, you know, are we getting there? Maybe, maybe. And that's thinking completely off the beaten path, right? In terms of how things are done with rockets and so and reusability. I remember people laughed at me when I was with SpaceX and I'd go uh, speak with some of the companies Oh, we're gonna land. We're gonna land rockets back. We're gonna bring them back and land them. Like, oh, come on! You guys are, you guys are dreaming. You'll never do that, right? They used to laugh at me, but I mean, Elon had his vision, and as a matter of fact, he forbade me from doing several missions because they're just slightly above the rated capacity. Even though we had plenty of extra capacity there left to to do those missions, because he said, no, someday I'm gonna have some legs on this thing. And some days I'm going to bring I'm going to bring back these rockets, and I don't want anybody selling more capacity than we have because I need that extra capacity to cover my rockets. That was part of the plan from day one, right? Look at this, over 100 vehicles now back, right? I think reusable rockets are in a lot of technology. It's a lot like when you know people thought no human could run a sub four minute mile, and then once it was done everyone was doing it and we're starting to see that in the the launch industry today is that you know once it was done now everyone like it's table stakes if you can't land it and at least save your first stage you're not even a, a viable player in the game anymore right i mean obviously you know you could build it cheaply and then just have your first stage land in the ocean that that's that's fine if you do very very cheaply but yeah I mean, spacex made it a reality and uh now, every other large launcher or, or I guess, a credible launcher developing a, a bigger vehicle is doing exactly that because it makes a lot of sense. You know, you don't throw away an aircraft, a 747 or, or a 777 after one flight, right? You reuse it and reuse it and reuse it. And that's exactly where, where the industry has been going, thanks to one disruptor showing that it can be done, right? And, you know, it's it's going to, you know, right now, everything is pushing that direction and it's about you know, increasing profit margins, making more money for the company, but it won't be long until once everyone is reusing their first stage, some of them their second stage. Now it's not about making boatloads of more money because you're able to, to reuse these things. As it becomes more table stakes, everyone's going to be expecting that pricing and it's going to push the, the commoditization of, of launch, I think. Completely, uh, Clinton. That, that's exactly what we were talking about earlier today too, is the fact that when you start seeing more and more and more of these players doing it and landing their stages and so forth, then all of a sudden that $55 million seat drops to, to 10, drops to half a uh, maybe 5 million, and all of a sudden a sub million. And then you start getting, you know, hundreds of people going up there every month or a couple months or so. That's where you start seeing things really, really change, right? We're going to get there. Of course, we're going to get there because several companies are already developing vehicles to do exactly that. And the more you fly them, the more you reuse them, the, the lower the prices will become for the masses, right? So that's our future. It's a it's an exciting future, I have to say, space industry. <laughs> so do you do you get out to a launch very often? Yeah, I do. Whenever I can, uh, depending on, on what customers I'm talking to, uh, I'll, I'll go to Florida or 
I have been to, uh, I used to go to Kazakhstan to, to see the Soyuz launches and so forth. That's not going to be a, a thing anymore, obviously, unfortunately. But uh, I also saw a proton launch, you know, the big proton vehicle. That was many years ago. That was pretty exciting, you know. But uh, yeah, I love launches. Uh, it's just a, a rumble. Uh, it's like listening to a big engine on the car. This is 10 times more than that, right? <laughs> or 100 times more than that. You're a car guy too, right? Yeah, I love to put my hands in, in engines and fix everything on cars. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew's kind of a car guy. What, what do you work on, Andrew? Oh, work. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He doesn't work on anything. Let's let's be clear about that one. I'm a BMW German, German auto guy. But despite them becoming computerized, you know, you, you can plug in, diagnose, Fix. Yeah, I've done a couple a uh, couple engines, the 528s, but I'm more of a Land Rover guy now. So I have several Land Rovers, and so I know everything about them. And but just there's a, a therapeutic thing about working on engines. You have to go from A to B to C. You have problems. You can't get a bolt loosened up or something. And you know, it's just that process of going from A to B to C to D before you can fix a problem or or fix something that's not fixable by doing something different, you know, putting an additional brake line, for example, if you can't take the old one out or something, that's fun. And it's very therapeutic. You know, of course you have to have the heavy metal music in the background to help. That really helps. Right? I was going to say, yeah, fun until it's stuck and then fun again. But it's problem solving, especially with a computerized cars. Now it's not always easy to figure out what the problem is because so many sensors, right? You have a 50 or hundred sensors in every car. I'm really surprised like uh, on how many space people are, are car people. Obviously, Elon's a, a car person. I'm not sure in the same way that you are, but then we had um, Bianca Cefalo on here that's a, a Formula One enthusiast. You with, with Land Rover and, and everyone kind of has their, their thing, but I never really realized how many space people are also car people. That just blows me away. It must be the, the issue of, uh, of uh, you know, working on hardware. You know, you want to work on some hardware. You can't. You can't very much work on 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 a, on a space vehicle that's already in space, right? It's out there. And what do you do with your hands? You, you got to do something with your hands. So touching a car is more. Uh, you know, kind of it gets you that endorphin, I guess. You know, of uh, working, solving something, fixing something that it's not going to go up to space and then you're not going to be able to do it again. <laughs> but I, I love that we called this out because, like, I'm totally calling BS on Andrew's car mechanic abilities like i'm not sure i believe that one i believe he'll plug it in and and see what's going on i'm gonna have to come up there and check that one out andrew i'm gonna have to look for myself come on over anytime if if you know how much an m mechanic makes because m mechanics go through special training they have to go to germany and then they come back and they charge twice as much you quickly become a mechanic in your own right out of necessity out of necessity we have an x5 here and uh I've had some issues with the injectors and one of the injectors went out some time ago. And, and so six, seven months ago, I put the tester and then I had to go cylinder by cylinder to figure out which one it was, swap them to make sure that it was correct. And then finally re- replace them all and everything's good. But tester does help, you know, to try to narrow it down where it is, right? That just doesn't sound fun at all to me. I can't see that one. <laughs> so let's say all the languages and now the car talk, it's, it's blown past me too quick. <laughs> oh, but, but, but Clint, I mean, after you get through this process and you fix it and, and, and turn the key out and just purrs, purr, you know, and you think, oh, yeah. I'm sure it's a great feeling. Take it on the road, baby. Let's take it on the road. And, and it just feels good, you know? <laughs> so what about classic cars? Like, are you into classic cars as well? Not so much, no. You know, in the past, of course, you know, I was a poor student and, and I had some, some, I guess you can call it classic in a way, I had a Fiat 124 Sport. And that Fiat 120 Sport had a lot of issues. It had a vapor lock. 
So and I was living in the, I was getting my master's degree in, in, in Phoenix at the time. And when the vapor locked, it just, you couldn't start the damn thing uh, ever again. So I had to reroute the fuel lines. So they were always, you know, one went, one went to the carburetor and the other one went back to the, to the gas tank so that it was being refreshed the whole time. We wouldn't have time to develop a little bit of vapor in, in the line. And then one day I was driving and the transmission and I heard this big clank. And then all of a sudden I had the gear shift from the transmission in my hand <laughs> all by itself. So I had to redo the transmission on that thing. It was one of the uh, synchronizer rings that broke off. So things like that, because I was a pro student, I didn't, you know, and that was, I guess, kind of a classic because it was a, one of these with a uh, wooden panels, you know, convertible, very nice, nice vehicle. We would have a little uh, metal rack in the back to put your bags on. You know, the you've seen it, the 124 Sport. It was a very, very beautiful looking model. But uh, so, but those are things I had to do because I had to do it, right? Because uh, yeah, you guys would be embarrassed to be seen with me. My cars are all classic cars because I've owned them since they were not classic cars. Like I, I just... I don't know. I'm just not kind of into the joking aside though, like A to B for a vehicle for me is the way to go. I think about working on a car and I just think of a million other things I'd rather be doing, but you know, car people are car people. There's not a lot of in between kind of like space people though. I mean, space people, you get it in your blood and you just can't shake it. And I've never met anyone that kind of got into the space industry, dipping a toe in and wasn't really for them. I don't think I've ever met anyone like that. I think you're right. I think most of the people that I know, of course, are the most mostly space people, but very passionate about it. Very, very passionate about it. And don't want to think about anything else, you know, because it's so, I guess there's so much unknown still that, that and when you think about space and you think about the universe and you think about so much that we don't really know that we're just discovering, I mean, you know, discovering all these exoplanets. I think we've discovered about 5,000 of them since we had these big space telescopes up there. I mean, that's pretty exciting stuff. We're learning. We're learning so much right now. And space brings that to you, brings that constant flow of new things that are happening. So, uh, yeah, you're right. A lot of people are very, very, uh, we call them space cadets, and I'm one of them. We love doing this show because we get all kinds of amazing people like you on the show. And, And you've been around the business for a while. But one of the things that we love to see are brand new entrants into the industry. So, People that are just starting their career right out of college and getting into the space industry, or they're transitioning from one industry completely in, into a new one with the space industry. And so for someone like you that's been around the, the space industry for a while, is there any way as kind of a, a last thing for today that you could recommend to people who aren't in the industry? How do you get started in this business? How do you transition into the space industry? Or if you're a student coming in, into the business, how do you get there? I guess one thing that I've said to a lot of people that that are just graduating, getting their first degrees, and they really they ping me on, on LinkedIn to have a little quick chat. And I do that once in a while. If I see the background of the person, I see they have some sort of a liking and some affinity of some strong demonstrated affinity to space. I will take those calls and I will have a 15 or 20 minute chat with somebody that I don't know at all. What I usually say is as long as what you're trying to do makes you go, wow, then that's all you need to do. If what you're imagining you want to do in space makes you go, wow, then pursue that. Be that uh, the legal side, be that, um, you know, um, there was one company, I'm not going to mention the name, but that uh, hired a school teacher to write up all the proposals for customers. And a school teacher was just pulled out of a high school somewhere, not an aerospace engineer whatsoever, but working with a big aerospace company, because 
They wanted the, the proposals to be beautifully presented, nice paragraphs, no orthographic mistakes and so forth, right? So for me, it's more one of an issue of regardless of what you want to do, you want to be in the, in the blogging industry, you want to do uh, social media campaigns, if you're really good at that and space does it for you, connect those two dots, right? Whatever makes you go, if space makes you go, wow, you can be anything as a provider, or you can be involved in so many ways today that you couldn't do 20, 30 years ago, because it's become that more mainstream, that much, that much more larger, I think, as an industry today, that it, it uses all kinds of services today. So I think uh, that's my main uh, thing would be is, is you know, make sure that it, that it really strikes you. And if that wow is there, then it's not work anymore. You just because you're doing it because you really, really like it and you'll be better at it quite honestly, because it does make you go wow every day, right? It does certainly for me. I think that's what we're all looking for is is something that makes us go wow every day. And you, like almost every person that we've had on this show, I think they all got here kind of the same way. They may articulate that a little differently, but it was something that really made them go wow. And space does that, right? For a lot of us. I mean, there's so much, so much to learn still. We know a lot. But there's a hell of a lot more to learn, you know, and, and that's what's the wonder of it, right? I think that's what makes Clint and Chad come on the show every day with me. Well, Robert, it's been tremendous having you on the show. And we're at the end of our time, but thank you so much for coming on, telling us how you got into the space industry, all the really cool stuff you're working on. And we can't wait until your first zero G event. Yeah. We want to be invited. We'll be there. Andrew will pay our way. It would be great to... Uh, no, I'm, I'm organizing the trip to the, to the maritime launch. All the money he's saving on his BMW mechanic works, he's going to use to, to get us all up there. It's a deal. You, you guys will be invited. You shall be invited. Chat, Clint, Andrew. Noted. Boom. Done. All right. <laughs> Robert, thank you. We'll see you on the, on the flip side. Likewise. Take care, guys. Thank you. That was a good show. Really great guests to have on there. Andrew, I'm glad you got all over all of your stuffy nose and all of your your whining from this morning. It's great to have you back. I'm glad that, you know, I'm the wow for the two of you. You're our wow guy, Andrew. I am the wow guy. But you know, Robert's right. It's all about the wow. And I'd say, you know, in my career, I've made a, a couple of career non-wows. Yeah, I've done a couple of career choices. As, as a mutual friend of ours says, you know, I made a couple of left turns in my career and both of them were made, you know, simply for the wrong reasons. Wanted to, to move up in the world, wanted to do it for money. But, you know, I think when you make a decision based on money or climbing a ladder, you just, you make the wrong decision almost every time. And when you make a decision, like Robert said, on getting to the thing that makes you go, wow, that really changes things. You know, Clint, speaking as a sales guy, if you're not making the decision for money, then you're not a sales guy. Do you remember the first time we met, Andrew? Uh, vaguely, yes. In you know what Brandy the first or... thing you said was when you saw me? I don't. You're taller than I thought. You said, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I was saying, wow, because I recall Clint rolling in the room with this massive you know, folder of accounts. Yeah, Andrew shows up and uh, I and... and colleague, good friend, Lee, we were sitting there, we were ready for this Canadian that was going to roll in and show us how to do things. And we'd already prepared all these uh, overviews of accounts and folders. And and he came in. Like, studious Americans. Yeah. He's like, Hey, what's up guys? 
I'm Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But we've had a lot of fun over the years. We have. We have. Had a good time working together. Had to dampen things down a little bit, even it out, brought in Chad, kind of leveled things out a little bit. Somebody's got to bring everybody back, you know? Back down to the beach in Aruba. But you know, it's it's been great working together over the years, meeting really cool people like like Robert. And, you know, I think he's right too on where things are going with, you know, how we get where we want to be. Is it flying, you know, Mach 10.1? Is it orbital hops? These are all things that, 10.1 is obviously a joke that you guys didn't get. I was going to say, did you see Top Gun Maverick there, my friend? That's out of the bag. Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait, could you? You guys couldn't wait. You're supposed to <laughs> no, see I fully admit I couldn't wait. I fully admit it. So, but you know what I did? You know, because you guys burned me so bad by going to see Maverick without me, um, went to see it in, I think it's called 4DX. Have you guys seen that before? I saw it as an option on one of the theaters. Yeah, like the full motion seats, not just the rumble seat, but the full motion. Oh, full motion. Yeah, it tilts to the left. It tilts to the right. And whenever there were machine gun fire, it would shoot little puffs of air at you as if the the bullets were whizzing by you. It has a hose mounted to the seat, so it sprays you with water whenever you, you hit water wind flashes like it's a an experience for sure so clint went and rid him uh, a mechanical bull basically and put his iphone up in front of him it was about like riding a mechanical bull the fighter engine uh mechanical bull or the fighter jet i have no idea where i even was on that conversation you guys totally threw me off with the maverick comment robert was a great guest yeah robert was a great guest this is the wow team and i think we should wrap up on that note on that note wait 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 but I think there's one thread we need to pull on, like going for a, a zero G flight. Like, I think the three of us heard the offer. Andrew was willing to pay to get us up there. We need to go do that. We're good to go. Thank you, Andrew. No problem. I'll take you up. I'll, I'll thank you in advance. I'll take you up into Cessna 152 and we can do the zero G. And for those that don't know, Cessna 152s only have two seats. So somebody's riding in the baggage compartment. Chad will sit on my lap. That's that's how we'll do it. (laughs) And on that note. And on that note, thanks for showing up for Space and 60. Again, we love to, to hear from all of our listeners around the world. Can't wait to be here with you again next time on the next show, Space and 60. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space and 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space and 60, where new space speaks. Space and 60.